Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today I'm speaking to Catherine Doroshak. Catherine is a PhD student at the University of Washington, and we will be talking about using DNA to tag physical objects. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Katie, how did this idea of uh, using DNA for tagging, uh, how, how did this idea appear? In our lab, uh, we are really interested in DNA data storage and also interested in trying to figure out how we can store information in DNA in a variety of different ways. Uh, molecular tagging is something that's a really low density information storage. So we wanted to do, design a system for molecular tagging that was DIY end to end by non-experts and also retain a lot of the benefits of things like QR codes and barcodes where they're really easy to use. Um, we wanted to be able to generate arbitrary tags on demand without DNA synthesis and decode them quickly and accurately with minimal special equipment. So we designed a system that can use nanopore sequencing to to read tags back and uh, a modular system for encoding information in DNA. Okay, so basically you want to replace the uh, QR codes or, or the barcodes on uh, things like on products in a store or what are, what other things can you think of like that would require tagging that you can use DNA tags uh, or you would want to use DNA tags instead of like more conventional tags? Sure. I mean, um, barcodes and QR codes are both very efficient. Same with RFID tags are extremely inexpensive. So there's a lot of applications where molecular tagging really isn't a good approach. However, there are cases where maybe things are too wet, flexible, or numerous to tag efficiently using these kinds of methods. And especially in tracking of provenance, secret exchange, and counterfeit detection, there are some applications where using DNA to tag things is actually a really good idea. Okay, so give, give me some specific examples. What are the wet and and numerous and uh, very expensive things that you you want to tag with DNA? A really um, one example is food or liquids. Um, let's say you maybe want to embed some information inside a paint. That's something that would be possible with DNA, but not necessarily with a electronic tag of some sort. We've also considered doing some tagging of Things like pharmaceuticals, where you have quite a few uh, items that can't necessarily be individually tagged unless they have some sort of um, solution applied to them. And also secret exchange, where maybe you have a Bitcoin wallet that you want to send to someone, and you don't want to send it in a way that you can easily just throw it into a computer very quickly and decode it. So in that case, it's more security by obfuscation. So most of your work is concerned with uh, designing the tags, designing the DNA sequence uh, and like the, the protocol of, of reading it. Uh, so I understand you, you didn't do a whole lot of work about the, the practical aspects, but, I, but I'm still curious how could that work in practice? So let's say you have a piece of medicine that you want to tag with DNA, like how would it work in practice, both tagging and, uh, and the extraction of the tag? So taking a physical object will require just applying a solution. Let's say you've already got the tag made. We can go into that more um, later on. But let's say we've got our, our tag, our DNA solution. We can apply it to the object. And as long as it can dry successfully on the object, 
it is seemingly relatively stable according to the tests that we've done. Then all that is required to read it is just rehydrating it and throwing it directly on the nanopore minion device without any further sample prep. So it's really convenient by kind of pushing the sample prep on the side of when you create the tag. And then when you read it out, the, the trade-off is that it's very quick. You can do this within a few minutes, a few seconds to minutes. So if we talk about like a pill, would you want to tag the pill directly or would you want, I, I guess not, right? Because then in order to extract the tag, you need to uh, apply some water to the pill. So you want to tag the packing, the, the wrapping of the pill? It could actually be either. One one way to think about it, if you are taking um, the pills in this case directly, would be that you might not want to sample all of them. But if you're looking at source tracking or commodity tracking, you may, may want to just take a sample of one out of a thousand and say, is this entire batch what we think it is? If so, then this tag should be present and it should be valid. And if not, then we can leave the rest of the other 999 of them alone. Uh, you could, there's also some companies already out there that are doing tagging of the outside of the packaging. And that is certainly a, an area that is worth pursuing as well. And uh, as you said, in order to read the tag, you need to wash the place or the small object that is tagged. By washing, you get the DNA. And then uh, the idea is not to require any sample preparation. So the idea is just to take that uh, small amount of liquid and put it into, into Minion. Would, would that work? That's exactly right. We actually do all of the sequencing preparation ahead of time. So for nanopore sequencing to work, there's a little sequencing adapter that gets attached to the DNA. And by including that ahead of time, it's actually... Um, able to be read out immediately and also contamination free. So it's not going to pick up DNA from the environment or if so, not very much. And we'll only read the tag. And and so the way you protect from the environmental DNA is that your DNA contains the barcodes and the environmental DNA doesn't, right? Or or rather than barcodes, sequence adapters? Yeah, exactly. So this has a sequencing adapter attached to the DNA, which all the DNA contains the barcode, but it's really the sequencing adapter that requ is required for it to be sequenced. Otherwise, it is uh, it flows through so fast that it's hardly a blip in the sequencing machine. It's actually kind of cool uh, to see the difference between DNA that's just passing through and also actually able to be read. Okay, so the overall idea of your approach is to have a set of separate sequences uh, that you mix, right? And the presence or absence of a sequence plays a role of a single bit. So if you have some number, so I think you have 96 different uh, sequences that you call mole bits, and the presence or absence of each individual sequence conveys one bit of information, which is different from, I think, the more conventional way of using DNA to store information, which is encode your information, your bits directly as the nucleotides. So why uh, did you decide to go that route instead of encoding the information in the DNA directly? By encoding information as presence or absence, what we create is a system where you can arbitrarily mix 
different DNA strands together to create new tags. And this is in contrast to the method that you said with encoding information directly in the DNA, where you have to go through a really complicated synthesis process every time you would want to encode different information. This requires sending a sequence to a synthesis company like IDT or Twist, and then they would be able to send you the fully assembled DNA strands back. Now, in this case, we just ask them to order a very short strand that can be modularly mixed with other DNA in order to just create a library where you can pull from. As you said, it's if a bit is one, that particular type of DNA is present and we'll physically pipette that into the final mixture. And then after we combine the tag, we add the sequencing adapters, apply it to the object, ship it or store it, and then finally rehydrate it and read it using the min-ion. So by encoding information in a much lower density, we have a trade-off where, yeah, we don't have that much density of information, but we have this DIY system that you can mix and match these bits uh, as as desired for the final tag. So you say you apply uh, or you ligate the adapter after you order the sequences. Is there a reason the adapters are not just part of the uh, sequences that uh, your provider synthesizes? They certainly could be. We ended up just only adding the sequencing adapters after the fact just to save on reaction costs, but there's nothing that is fundamental that would that would prevent you from preparing each of these 96 bits with a sequencing adapter so it's truly ready to go. It just was a convenience that we chose for gathering data for cost reasons. But if you were to generate a lot of takes, yeah, you'd want to pre-prepare these fully. So if I am a customer of this technology, then uh, you supply me these uh, 96 small bottles of uh, concentrated DNA. Is that what it looks like? Yeah, exactly. And then I, uh, I have my code and your software would translate my code, my tag into a 96-bit sequence and will tell me, take some DNA from the bottles 1, 6, 13, 28, and so on. And uh, I would just pipette these sequences together, mix them, and then apply to, to the object? Yep, that's it. But I imagine that would take quite a while, right? Especially, it's like, on average, we can expect 96 over 2, which is uh, 48. Right. Yeah. Uh, so on average, I would it would require forty eight pipetting steps and uh, keeping track of all of that. So, so this is not exactly like high throughput. Although, if you need to tag a lot of objects with the same tag, then you prepare this once. But if you need to apply individual unique tags to a lot of objects, uh, this doesn't seem very practical. It depends on the application. So there are methods that can be used to combine these automatically, for example, with micropumps and more automated lab software, which if you wanted to generate more than just a few tags, you would absolutely want to try an, a method to combine them that suits the scale, which would be automated in this case. Oh, this is very cool. So you would sell a machine, right, that would automatically just mix these uh, molecular bits, small bits. Yeah, I don't know if we would sell the machine, but we would certainly be able to support mixing in that method. And so once you decided on this encoding scheme where you use uh, a presence and absence 
of individual sequences to encode your information. Um, what are the requirements for the individual sequences? What are the constraints that uh, you have to respect when designing these sequences? Well, the goal when designing these is to make them look visually as distinct as possible so that we can decode them with as much accuracy as possible. But let's, let's clarify that visually doesn't here uh, mean under a microscope, right? Right. It actually means what the DNA looks like when it is run through the nanopore sequencing device. So just a recap for those who may not be quite as familiar with nanopore sequencing. What will happen is that a DNA strand flows through a nanoscale pore in a, in a membrane. And as it's flowing through, ionic current is being run across. And so as the DNA sequencing unwinds and goes through the pore, the signal that comes out the other side that's being measured changes depending on what DNA is in there. And so we can modify the DNA sequences to produce signals from the nanopore sequencing machine that look different. And that is our, our goal in this case. Because typically what will happen is you've got your DNA sequence you run it through the, the min-ion, the it's Oxford Nanopore Technologies min-ion device, which is a commercially available nanopore device. You run it through this device, and then you'll have to figure out how to get the bases, the DNA bases back out of this signal. And so this is a process called base calling. And it's very complicated. It's highly error-prone. However, if we can just go directly from signal to identifying which bit is present, that's such, um, such a more efficient process and fundamentally simpler problem than going through base calling. So we want to make those signals look as distinct as possible and therefore figure out which sequences generate distinct signals in order to make our lives easier when we're trying to decode these. So some of the constraints that we have built on top of that are uh, that we want to make sure that these sequences aren't going to fold on themselves. We also want to make sure that we, when we are training a model to detect these later on, that we have a nice easy sequencing uh, labeling. So we make sure that they're not too similar in the sequencing space. And then other than that, we're just trying to, to continually push these sequences to look more and more distinct in an evolutionary model. There's a tool that we use to simulate squiggles that was produced by Oxford Nanopore that is actually pretty faithful to what the Nanopore sequencer produces. And so we will just take these sequences that we've designed modify a couple bases at a time and then see what the squiggle looks like or what it is simulated to look like and compare that to the others. And if it, we're just trying to push these further apart in, in visual space. And to clarify by squiggles, you mean these curves of, I guess it's the current that flows through the, through the pore? Yeah, actually, it's a it's, it's a funny thing. It's a term that somehow has made its way into academic literature, despite being kind of a funny word squiggle, but it references the nanopore signal. And you can, as, as the DNA flows through, that kind of wiggles about. And so therefore, if that's, that's how it got the name of squiggle. And so you can invent or generate various DNA sequences and use this tool to predict the shape of, of this curve of the squiggle that will probably arise when you try to sequence the well the sequence on the nanopore um, and then your goal is to generate this uh, set of mal bits which produce the curves that are easy to distinguish from from one another and so how did you go about this task 
So we started out with a set of sequences that were just totally random. We simulated what they would look like in the nanopore device and then used a similarity measure called dynamic time warping to compare the to, to calculate the similarity of these sequences. So basically if the um if the distance between them or the dynamic time warping measure is smaller, then they are more similar and we wanted to make their dynamic time warping scores much further apart. And so we'll then take one sequence at a time, mutate some of the base pairs within it, and then figure out whether, and then re-simulate the sequence in the nanopore, calculate whether it improved its distance to the other, the other sequences, and if it didn't, we'll reverse it and keep trying. So it's basically this evolutionary process where sequences are getting modified individually over time, and as a whole, they start to get pushed further and further apart under dynamic time warping. Am I right in, in thinking that this is an instance of an evolutionary model, but this isn't quite genetic programming? It's not a genetic algorithm. It is, a, I guess, genetic algorithms are a subset of evolutionary algorithms, but evolutionary algorithms are an enormous class where basically it's just a process of modifying something and checking fitness. Yeah, and the the reason is that in a genetic algorithm, you use different elements, different sequences, for example, and uh, if two sequences are good, you're trying to combine them to make something that's even better, even closer to the uh, to the end goal. But you don't want the elements to converge; you want to generate even more and more diversity, and that's why you don't want to combine them? Yeah, there's also the complexity of adding the additional layer of the simulation on top of of this. Um, so instead of just having some kind of measure that you can say, yes, this is definitely better, we want to combine them, um, combining the squiggles is not quite as straightforward. I would have loved to do something like a generative model with this task, I think it would be much better suited for larger numbers of DNA sequences. So I don't think evolutionary model is necessarily required to produce sequences like this, but it was a a way to kind of um, test this out in a very controlled way, where there's not the the distance is growing very slowly, and at each step there's an opportunity to kind of undo things if it doesn't improve. And you mentioned something that I want to discuss in some more detail. So this uh, dynamic time warping algorithm. Yes. Uh, so so what is it and uh, how does it work? This is a dynamic programming algorithm that is essentially solving the problem where you can have some warping in between the two two different nanopore signals. So if you were to line these up directly point for point, what would happen is that even if you've got just the exact same sequence the exact same signal, but shifted over by a little bit, those are going to register as completely different using just standard Euclidean distance, for example. But dynamic time warping will allow some some alignment between neighbors. And it's actually the same exact algorithm as Smith-Waterman, which is used for sequence alignment, but where Smith-Waterman has a discrete cost function where you've got maybe different scores for matching, mismatching, and taking gaps... For dynamic time warping, it's continuous. So it's actually using Euclidean distance within this and saying how close are these two points uh, numerically and using that instead of a substitution function. Mm-hmm. So I think it's actually interesting that it's being that we can reuse it in in this context, which is still very close to, to sequence alignment. 
And so what happens when uh, a nanopore device reads these sequences is that, well, it, it reads them one by one, right? And uh, for each tag, it produces a squiggle that you try to recognize. And then once you sequenced enough tags, for each of the tags, you can tell whether it's, it's present or absent. And uh, you can run this process for some time until you gain confidence in your results and then actually stop this process, right? And you have some data, like how much time you need, uh, how much time of reading or generating the squiggles uh, you need. So uh, talk about what, what the time is and why it's important to to cut the process short. Yeah, with the, the data that we've generated so far, we've been able to decode all the tags within 10 seconds of sequencing, which is absolutely uh, shocking to us. We thought it would take much longer than that. That's at a read generation rate of about 10,000 reads per minute. So this may differ depending on which uh, on how old the flow cell is, stuff like that, but about roughly 10 seconds in, in that order of magnitude. And it's really important to be able to stop that as early as possible because we can actually reuse the flow cells. We wash out the, whatever was present on the flow cell before, and there is a little bit that gets left behind, but it's about 10%. And these flow cells are meant to be used for longer running experiments like genomics, where it may be running for 24 hours. And if we can keep reusing them, we bring the cost of reading down significantly. So the, the shorter period of time we can do, the better. Whether it's 10 seconds or a few minutes doesn't really have a huge impact on the flow cell lifespan, but it is cost is the main driver there. Um, one additional factor is that the number of nanopores available on the device start to go down over time. So it starts out with about 512 that are active at the same time. There are about 2,000 that are on the device, and a quarter of them are active at the same time. And over time, they start to get clogged or broken or just malformed and don't accept data. So although it decays over time, because it's only a few seconds of data, it kind of evens out in the end. It doesn't take a whole lot longer in order to read these. So I guess because you stop the process early uh, to save on the cost, uh, you get some amount of read count variation. Uh, so not all the mall bits are sequenced to the same depth. How do you deal with this? Yeah, so just to, to restate the, the problem there, ideally we would have, for all bits that are present, a high number of reads or an even number of reads actually for each of the bits that are present. And zero or very, very few reads for anything that is not present. But as you stated, that's not what we see. And so we deal with this by adding a layer of error correction on top of it. And this is something that is even used in QR codes and RFID tags in order to accommodate some kind of some kind of fuzzy fuzziness in reading it, especially QR codes. They can handle anywhere from zero to seventy percent of the QR code being obstructed depending on uh, depending on the encoding scheme that they use. And similarly, we can encode, we can handle a variable amount of errors depending on which encoding scheme we use. So in this case, we save a certain number of bits 
to encode the actual message and then add an additional set of bits to be able to correct errors that we encounter. Right. So you have 96 bits and if you used all of them, you'd get like two to the 96 possible messages, which is an absolutely astronomical number. Yeah, it's probably more than you might want to use. Yeah, uh, the, there is this famous tale about the inventor of chess who requested something like two to the power of 64 uh, grains of rice, and, and that uh, was yeah. an astronomical number. And of course, two to the power of 96 is much, much more astronomical. So you're not going to use all these bits to encode like actual useful content and your actual text will be much shorter or have much less information so you use the remaining bits for the redundancy right as you say as with the qr codes or barcodes um, and then the question becomes how exactly you you pad your text to 96 bits so that you can uh, so that it helps you to decode the uh, the information even if you have some errors and errors in your case would be if the mall bit should be present but you didn't detect it on a certain level right and see so you round it down to zero or it can the opposite also happen right because you reuse mm -hmm. the pores so maybe some sequences stuck and you accidentally detect a mall bit yeah, or maybe some of them are more similar than we intended. But in the end, because we have this error correction, it doesn't matter so much. And so in order to encode this information, we're using linear codes. And we're implementing this using random generator matrix. And so a linear code means that the 96-bit sequence that you encode into the DNA, uh, every bit is a linear combination of the original bits that are in your shorter intended tag. And and when we say linear here, because these are bits, we mean um, not like a numeric edition where one plus one equals two, but we, we mean a binary edition where one plus one equals, equals zero. So we round all the even numbers to zero and all the odd numbers. Uh, to one. Uh, so this is something called a binary field. And, but the, the basic idea is that you combine, you add up modulo two, um, the bits in your original message, some of the bits, and these various linear combinations of the original bits result in your uh, DNA bits or mole bits. Yeah, and in this case, we use a special case of linear codes called random generator matrices, where we're essentially taking this this message that we've given as input and multiplying it by a totally random matrix to extend it to the full length of 96 bits. And we tried a bunch of different types of linear codes. However, none of them worked quite as well or consistently well for varying number or for for a varying number of input bits. And, uh, and lengths, We've, we also experimented with how many bits to include. We ended up with 96 just because it fits in a plate. But anyway, random generator matrices ended up being the most consistent, consistently well-working error correction for this kind of system. And it's super easy to generate. It takes a little bit of time to decode, but is 
was a good trade-off for this application. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so normally these linear codes, they're carefully designed. So uh, I guess the the most famous one is the Shannon code, where mm -hmm. it's like a way to encode four bits into seven bits and the the formulas to to combine the original bits to produce the code are very carefully chosen so that you get some guarantees about being able to decode. Uh, for example, if you have up to one error, you can decode the original message. And those uh, codes are designed to be very space efficient. So you can encode like four bits into seven bits. So that's a good um, sort of ratio. Mm -hmm. But in your case, I guess you have a lot of headroom and you're not that worried about um, being economical, but you have some other objectives, right, for, for your coding scheme? Yeah, people spend their entire careers just working on a specific encoding and decoding scheme for very specific input um, input messages and output vector sizes. And so by using something that was a little bit more of a general case, that added a, uh, some flexibility to the, the the model and kind of we didn't want to distract by in, in incorporating something that was too complex into this paper but this is something that could be swapped out for any other encoding scheme that a user may choose to use and how do you decode this so the inc encoding is done by multiplying by a random zero one matrix right uh, and and yes. how do you do the decoding so some subsets of this have specialized um, or more efficient ways to decode, but we ended up just actually using a simple brute forcing method to decode these. So even with a brute force decoding method, it still only takes a, a minute or two in order to find the closest answer. And we can also stop early because we have those guarantees that you mentioned about being able to decode in a certain um, with a certain distance with a guarantee. So in our case, the minimum distance between the bits or between the tags is 18. And so we're guaranteed that the that the decoding will be correct if we have fewer than nine errors, meaning even though it's brute force, we probably will be able to stop early on average and not search through the entire set of possible code words. However, if someone wanted to prioritize speed in this case, this method is kind of agnostic to which type of error correction is used, and someone could easily substitute for another method if desired. Sure, but uh, how in your method, how do you ensure, uh, because your generator matrix, and by, by generator matrix, we mean the, the way to convert from the original message to the code. So your matrix by which you multiply the original message, it is random, right? So how, how do you get this guarantee of the minimum minimum nearest neighbor distance? So it is random, but it's fixed for every application of the random generator matrix to these code words. So we can basically calculate a priori what the minimum distance between the tags actually is by doing an exhaustive search. And we chose one that had uh, a pretty large minimum distance. And for decoding, I was wondering, because this is a linear code, so this is just a multiplication by a matrix. Can you do mm -hmm. something like linear regression, but instead of like the field of real numbers, you would use the binary field. But if you use the same algorithm as in the linear regression, would, would that work? Unfortunately not. And there are 
people that have spent a lot of time working on specific cases where that may work, but in this case, in order to keep it general, we just kept it really simple and went with the, the brute force method. And uh, in your Malbets, you explored another dimension of variation, which is the insert length, right? And I guess this is a good time to talk about the structure of your Malbit sequences. So you have barcodes, right? And then you have an, an insert. So why did you choose this structure and uh, what does varying the insert length buy you? All right, so I'll unpack that. So just to go over this DNA strand design for a single molecular bit, on the five prime end, we've got our sequencing adapter that gets attached after all this is done. But the final sequence contains a sequencing adapter, then our 40 base pair molbit barcode sequence, which is unique for each molbit. Then we have the spacer that is a variable length that I'll talk about more in a moment. And then we've got another molbit barcode sequence and the sequencing adapter again. And this is so that you can sequence it from either side, no matter what. Now, we've been mostly talking about the molbit barcode sequence and how that needs to be unique, but the spacer sequence, as you referenced, is encoding length. Nanopore sequencers are very good at that generating um, lengths of sequences that are proportional to the input DNA sequence. And so even if we just have two lengths, long and short, for example, where short is about 400 bases and long is 1600, we are able to double the number of molbits that we have available. And this is without doing any other work. It's kind of like free lunch. Um, but we really needed to include this spacer sequence anyways in order to increase the length to be sufficient for nanopore sequencing in general. In order for nanopore sequencers to work well or most efficiently, there is a kind of a minimum sequence length, and that's probably around 200 bases. And that's totally, totally different from Illumina sequencing or other second-gen sequencing, where it's just fragments and they can be short or long, and no matter what, you're just going to read 150 uh, bases from each end. Whereas this case, if it's too short, it uh, either doesn't necessarily bend well enough to get captured in the pore, or the pore occupancy is so low, where occupancy is the amount of time that sequences are actually DNA strands are actually in the pore, that it's not a very efficient sequencing process. And uh, how do you design a good spacer sequence? Are, are there any constraints on that? One interesting thing about the Molbit spacer sequence is that the length of the nanopore signal is proportional to the length of the DNA sequence, as we would expect. However, it's also a little bit stochastic because each base resides in the pore for about the same amount of time, but there's some some variation. And so the longer sequences have a, a wider distribution of how long the true nanopore signal can be for the same length of DNA sequence. And so in this case, short means 400, uh, 400 bases and long meant to us 1600 bases. Uh, we probably could add another one at around 800, but they kind of have to be spaced out to account for this stochastic variation in the dwell time of the bases in the pore. But I, I imagine you wouldn't want to be lazy and just fill everything with like A's or everything with T's, right? Because I hear nanopores have a especially big issue with homopolymer. So you want to fill that with something high entropy? 
Now, interestingly, the issue that nanopores have with homopolymers is only with base culling. Because of the stochastic variation in dwell time of each base, they can't really tell if it's maybe 3As or 4As. Now, we don't have a problem with that here. We still probably don't want to use all A's or T's because of other sequencing-related problems where it can get strange, strange behavior of the sequences themselves. But we ended up just using a plasmid from a prepared bacterial library, and it was easy enough. We treat the, the insert sequence as random, and that seems to work pretty well in this case. Now, what, one interesting expression that appears in your paper and which I'd like you to talk more about is uh, Golden Gate Assembly, right? And this is something uh, you use to construct your mulbits. And uh, this isn't related to the assembly as we know it when we have like a set of sequencing reads and we try to assemble a genome, right? But what, what is Golden Gate Assembly? Right. So this is part of the, the wet lab protocols that we followed in order to create these sequences. We didn't necessarily want to have the entire mulbed sequence start to finish. And instead, we just wanted to have the unique portion synthesized for us. And then we combine that with the spacer sequence and the, the, the barcode on the flip side. So we use a process called Golden Gate Assembly in which there is a four base overhang that is left at the end of this 40 base unique sequence. And then the spacer sequence will have the reverse complement of that overhang. And then a set of um, re reactions can occur that will ligate them together. And they're really relying on that, that overhang to, to kind of glue the sequences together. And this allows us to combine molbits and their spacer lengths modularly and on the fly. So you don't necessarily have to synthesize hundreds of these if you want to have many different lengths. You can just leave the lengths and the, the bits separately on a shelf and combine them as needed. Again, this, as, as referenced earlier, this kind of depends on the scale that this would be applied at. And uh, as we mentioned before, you opted for not doing base calling, which on the one hand makes your task simpler because you don't need as fine a resolution of uh, reading the information. But on the other hand, it means that you can no longer use the available programs for, for base calling based on the Nanopore data. So you have to invent your own software to recognize your mulbits. So how, how does that software work? And, and maybe you can also talk a little bit about how uh, the standard base colors work and how is your software different from from base calling? Sure. Uh, I guess I'll dive in with the second question first about how base colors work. I think it's a good con contextualizer. So typically what will happen is that you'll get these raw signals off of the nanopore device, and then they have to go through some software that will convert it back to the DNA sequence. And these have evolved enormously over time. The current state of the art is actually using CNNs and CTC decoding, where which is actually modeled after handwriting detection and speech detection. And let's explain what CNNs are. CNNs are an abbreviation of convolutional neural networks. And these convolutional neural networks will apply matrix multiplications to the input sequence, essentially, in order to 
um, take basically a rolling average of what is present in the signal over a sliding window. Um, these are used for image recognition and can be applied for signal processing at the one-dimensional level. And the goal of these in this case is to be able to classify the sequences where um, these CNNs tend to kind of summarize the information. That's one way that you can think about it. It summarizes the information within the, the signal. CNNs are not necessarily known for their interpretability. In 2D applications of CNNs, what these end up picking up on are features in the image like curves or differences between uh, the brightness of a certain part of an image that can then be combined in order to identify the image itself. In, in the 1D case, this is also happening, but it's a little bit more abstract about how to interpret this. In a lot of times, I, I look at it as that it's kind of summarizing local current information in a way that makes it then easier to discriminate later on. And of course, because the interpretability of CNNs is somewhat limited, I could just be spewing nothing here. Uh, but essentially, it is reducing the dimensionality of the problem so that it becomes easier to classify with a fully connected layer later on in the network. These CNNs are the state of the art for base colors currently. Things have evolved drastically over time, starting with HMMs, thinking that you've got and HMMs this... are hidden Markov models. Yes, correct. Yeah, hidden Markov models. The goal of HMMs is to take a sequence as input and output another sequence, in this case, DNA sequence, the DNA sequences, depending on the levels of current that are available in, in the input strand. And this is... This process is very good when working with low noise systems and low noise signals. However, nanopore sequencing signals uh, signal to noise ratio is a lot lower than other applications, so it doesn't necessarily have the highest accuracy for HMMs. So we moved on towards things that were more deep learning focused, and they've improved over time in both speed and accuracy. So our system, which is called Porcupine, he also uses CNNs, but the problem that it's trying to solve is fundamentally different from base calling, where base calling is a really complicated decoding problem. Porcupine is try just trying to classify things. So we use a CNN. It's a lot shallower than um, the base callers that are out there, meaning that it has a lot fewer layers and therefore can run faster and is easier to train. We also don't need the enormous amounts of data that tend to be used to train base callers as well, since they need to observe a much larger sampling of variation and covering more bases, whereas we're just covering 96, so it's not quite as extensive of a problem. And because of that, our accuracy is a lot higher, and so identifying the mole bits is not really the problem, but dealing with this read count variation that we just talked about is more of the source of the errors than the CNN. Are there any future directions where... You might want to take this work. Something that we get asked a lot is whether it's why we don't encode multiple barcodes one after another instead of using a spacer. Because this also doesn't necessarily require more synthesis if we're just combining things that we already have. However, some of the challenges with that include being able to control the order. So in order to make this work, we uh, just naively with just combining them without having to control for order. It's essentially working on the, the 
the system of presence or absence as well, because we, these barcodes might be inserted in any random order using golden gate assembly and therefore it might not be as any more useful than just encoding the barcode sequence plus the spacer. Now, if we were able to control the order, that would be pretty cool and would be more of a molecular recording system and we can encode more information that way. All right, uh, Katie, it was a fascinating discussion. It's very cool how many different concepts, both from you know computer science and coding theory, and also from the wet lab, from synthetic biology or, or chemistry, just go into into this project. So it was very educational to to learn about all these. Uh, concepts from you and thanks for being on the podcast thanks for having me i always enjoyed chatting about this and appreciate your questions <laughs>